Grab your Bible and go to the book of Acts with me if you would. Go to Acts chapter 3. We're going to get there in just a minute. A couple thousand years ago, God came to earth in the form of a baby in a manger who was more than just a baby. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. That God became God incarnate, that our Savior, our God, walked on this planet. And that's, that's so unique to our faith, that you were just talking to a God who knows what it's like to live out the human experience. Just let that soak into your brain for just a second. You're not talking to some distant deity that's foreign to what it's like to live as a human. He did it. Come on, somebody. He lived on this earth and he felt the dirt between his toes and he felt all the things that it is to be human in so many ways and he had flesh on himself and he, he knew pain physically and emotionally. He knew loss. He knew grief. He knew all the things that you experience except sin. That's the one thing that he never did because he didn't come just to live. He came to die to be the perfect sacrifice necessary so that you and I could be made right with the one who created us because sin had separated us from him and, and only the perfect blood of the lamb could, could fix it. And so about 33 years into his time on this planet, he was betrayed and he was handed over and he died on a cross. Y'all, this isn't philosophical stuff. These are historical events. These are things that actually happened. And he hung on that cross till he died. And in that death, the price was paid, the veil was torn, and we have access to God. But the borrowed grave he was put in only held him for three days. Because he arose and he conquered death. But for 40 days after he came out of the grave, he physically was present with people. Hundreds of people saw him in his human form. A guy named Thomas actually felt him and put his hands in the place where his wounds were. And before Jesus ascended to heaven, because after he was done with everything he needed to do here, he had another assignment. And right now he's in heaven preparing a place for all who believe in him to spend all of eternity. But before he left... He said something really important to those people who had chosen to believe in him and follow him. He gathered them up on this mountain. And he, can I give you the Matt Smith version? Because this is, he says, I'm leaving. I'm going back to the Father. That's who I came from. I've got another assignment. But while I'm gone, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go. Don't stay here. Don't stay huddled together. Don't keep what you've seen and heard to yourself. Go tell people about it. Go tell people what you've seen. Go let them know what you've heard. He says, go make disciples. I have made disciples out of you, and now your mission is to go make disciples because disciples make disciples. And he says, in order to do this, you're going to have to go. You're going to have to go into places that are going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to have to go into places and interact with people that you wouldn't prefer to engage. And he says, of all nations, that when you go tell people, don't let the color of their skin or the language they speak deter you from sharing who I am with them. This message is for everybody. 
It's not reserved to a select people group, financial class, or education level. It's for all people everywhere. And he says, when they'll listen, teach them. Teach them to obey everything I've told you. Baptize them. And while you're doing this, I'm going to be with you. And in that moment, the church got its mission, and it will never change. The church exists to make disciples. That's why when people say, what do y'all do for discipleship? My answer is everything. We're the church. So everything we do is to grow people into understanding, knowing who Jesus is, and allowing the Holy Spirit to move into their lives and equip them to live like he did. He said, go make disciples. And in his essence, when Jesus said, go make disciples, a disciple is somebody who lives and loves like Jesus. And that's why the way that we say it is we exist to inspire people to live and love like Jesus. That salvation, he didn't say just go get people saved because Jesus wants so much more for you than a skip and a dip. Skip down an altar, pray one prayer, get dipped in a baptism pool, and then it's over. No, uh That's just the beginning. That's just the start of what God wants for our lives. He wants to mold us from the inside out. He wants to purify us with his spirit. He wants us to experience freedom and victory over temptation and sin and to walk in the life that he intended for us in the beginning. And the church is supposed to be a place that equips us to do all of this. And church, look at me. Every church has the same mission. If it's a biblical God-honoring, gospel-centered church. We all have the same mission. Jesus made it very clear why. But in his infinite wisdom, he left room for how. Because there needs to be different expressions of church. You know why? There's different people. And what one expression of church will reach one group of people with the gospel and another expression of church will reach another group of people with the gospel. And that's why we celebrate the co-laborers that are with us in this community because, look at me, no community could ever have enough churches that are really centered on Jesus. If the house is on fire, bring every truck. Come on. And the reason why we do what we do, and the reason why we even call our church Vintage Church is because there came a moment in my story and my life with Jesus where I started reading through the book that follows the Gospels. See, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, but the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first few books of our New Testament, but right after them in our scriptures is a book called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the early church, where Jesus gives us a history lesson. He gives us a window into what this thing, this thing called the church, the movement that Jesus started, what it looked like in its infancy. And what I read in the book of Acts my whole life is not what I'd necessarily seen for the most part in in what I knew as church. And y'all, I've been in church my entire life. I went to it all. I went to Sunday school. I went to preaching. I went to Sunday night. I went to prayer meeting on Wednesday. I went to both fall and spring revival. I went to VBS. I have puppets in my hand every Sunday morning. And my experience, I'm grateful for it. But I am like most of us. I saw things in the church that didn't make sense, especially when I looked at the New Testament. I saw people fighting over stuff. I thought, well, that's got to be in the Bible. You know what I found out? It's not. Like, God really don't care what color the pews are. Doesn't matter. 
And what I realized is the reason why this movement was built to last is because of the way it was built. And then what happens in here is the reason why we're all here. That we can all, we can all trace, and I know when I say this, it's hard for people to even fathom. You can, we can all trace our spiritual family tree back to the day of Pentecost. There was somebody that found Jesus on the day of Pentecost, and, and it mushroomed, and it spread, and they told somebody, and they told somebody, and they told somebody that eventually told to somebody that told you about Jesus. And I wanted to see us, I wanted to be a part of a church that didn't necessarily do what they did, but lived out their faith the way that they did. Because it wasn't about what they did, it was about who they were. It's about who they were. It was about the attitude and the spirit that they had in each of them that built this thing and its resilience. And that's why we call this Vintage Church. We were at the middle school one Sunday. If y'all don't know this, we haven't always worshiped here. We worshiped at Randall Middle School for about five and a half years, sitting up and tearing down every weekend. It was seven hours every Friday, a couple hours every Sunday. It was hell. I mean, it was great. (laughs) I was putting out the flag. I got to watch what I say because apparently everything I say becomes a T-shirt. Um... I was putting out our flags, our feather banners one Sunday, and a lady pulled up to me. And she said, what is a vintage church? Is it like an old-timey church? I said, yes, ma'am, you should come. <laughs> but if you look up the word vintage in the dictionary, part of the definition is denoting something of high quality, especially something from the past. And I believe that God does new and and fresh things, but I wanted to us to see a church that embodied the spirit of the book of Acts, the, the attitude of these men and women in here that I told you last week. As you read through the book of Acts, I see it marked by two specific things, lordship and ownership. If you had to say, okay, what, what were the two most evident markers of the New Testament church, of the church in the book of Acts? It starts with the lordship of Jesus Christ. They were so consumed with Jesus that Jesus, it was Jesus above all that they were, look at me, they were more about following the way than getting their way. They were so committed to the lordship and the supremacy of Jesus that he was Lord of all. And then there was this ownership, like they took ownership for this movement and for each other, and they were committed to community. And the verses that first jumped out to me back before we launched this church were Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Look at it with me. It's Acts 42, excuse me, Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed among the apostles. And now all the believers were together and they held all things in common and they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple courts and they broke bread from house to house and they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And I read that and said, that's what I wanna see. 
It's marked by lordship and ownership. And when you're marked by lordship and ownership, you see some very specific things become valued. And it is those values that I saw in these verses that became the values that serve as the guardrails for our church over the last 15 years. It seems to me that the early church followed Jesus' example in valuing intentional relationships. That this is a theme you see all throughout the Bible that that God uses relationships to, to bring people to understanding him, knowing him, and growing in him. They had these, so their relationships were so intentional, they didn't let it go from Sunday to Sunday before they saw each other. It says every day they connected. And I don't know if y'all know this, they didn't have iPhones. They didn't have email. That the only way for them to interact and communicate was to come together. And sometimes I wonder if all the avenues that we have are robbing us from the beauty of just being together in person where you can look in my eyes and I can look your eyes and we can see each other and actually be vulnerable and transparent and care for one another and pray for one another and hold each other accountable. Why did they value intentional relationships? Because the apostles, the disciples, they saw that in Jesus because he said, come follow me. That Jesus' initial invitation wasn't even believe in me, worship me. He said, no, come follow me. Come into my orbit. Come into my space. Let's do life together, and it's going to change you. And he challenged them to be together, intentional relationships. I think it's evident that they valued an integrated community, that they were connected, and that the church wasn't something that was separate from everything else. It says they went into the temple courts. You notice this? The church actually went into the community. They didn't just stay in their nice little buildings. They went out. They were present in the world in which they lived. They were in it, but not of it. They did not have some holy huddle in some beautiful building. They got their hands dirty and they stepped into the spaces that needed help and service and they went out. An integrated community, they were connected and it became a space too that that welcomed people from all walks of life. The beauty of the day of Pentecost when all, people from all different backgrounds and languages and came together. And the church should always be a place where when people walk in its doors, they feel wanted and welcome. Now, we don't compromise truth. We don't hold back saying the things that God has instructed us to say. An integrated community. Like, we have, to, we have to go out. That's why I'm grateful for, like, next Saturday... We're going to get off this campus, and we're going to go into the community. I hope you saw that this week. It's on our social media. If you're part of our email, you got an email that we're going to meet here next weekend, and our Serve the City team has mobilized us and created some projects where we're going to send teams from this church all over our community to do things that just need to be done, and it's the church's job to do it. I know you're busy, and I know you got a lot of stuff, but this will be a good place for you to be next weekend to serve Jesus and other people. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but if you do, that's from the spirit. It's not my fault. (laughs) But there's another thing that had to be extremely important in the movement of God because it was tested almost from the onset. That the church from the very beginning was threatened by things and people that didn't understand it and didn't want to see it continue to move forward. 
Look at me. The church will always have to be prepared to withstand obstacles and adversity. You know why? Because we have an enemy that doesn't want people to know Jesus. And so he'll do everything he can to get us not... The greatest way he'll get us to be ineffective is to convince us that we can compromise. And in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, for the very first time, there's this subtle little thing that a group of people want the disciples to do that may seem insignificant to some, but it's significant in more ways than we can understand. And had they not had inspirational leadership in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, then the movement that Jesus began would have went sideways really quickly. Inspirational leadership. The church has always needed leadership. It's always needed people to stand up and stand for the right things and order it for it to continue to be what Jesus intended it to be and not become something that the world is just comfortable with. See, it starts in in Acts chapter three. Look at it with me. Acts chapter three, verse one. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. So Peter and John, evidently this was a regular pattern for them, that every day around three o'clock, they would go to the temple to pray. And the Bible says that as they're going in on this day, there's a man sitting by the gate called Beautiful, and he cannot walk. And apparently it's been this way his whole life. And he's a man over 40 years old. And he would sit there and he would beg and he would beg and he would beg and he would beg. And Peter and John walked by and Peter and John and this man, they they lock eyes. And Peter and John say, hey, look at us. And this guy puts out his hand expecting some gold or some silver. And if you look at verse six, it says, but Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he gets up, starts doing the Macarena, the electric slide, the Cupid shuffle and all the other things. Like, because if you had been, if you have been unable to walk for 40 years and God's healed, you just get up and think, that's cool. I mean, he's dancing, he's moving around, he's skipping. And now all of a sudden, people are like, isn't that Johnny? I don't know what his name was. We're call him Johnny. He, I've been passing him for like 20 years. Is he, doing, is he doing the electric slide? What is happening? What is happening right now? See, God uses miracles to get people to pay attention to his message. And that's the only reason why he does miracles. He doesn't do miracles just for for the sake of, of healing. He always has a greater purpose. And when God does miracles, it brings eyes and ears that it wouldn't otherwise have. That's why when, when God delivers somebody from addiction, it gets people's eyes. And that deliverance is for a testimony to God's goodness. It's not just about your own freedom. Whoo, that is good. It's not just about your own freedom. It's about your testimony that God wants to use to get other people to pay attention to who he is. But these people, this dude, like he, he doesn't know Jesus yet. He, there's a lot of things that's happening. They, and they cling to Peter and John. And now everybody are like, did he heal them? Like, did, that, did those guys heal? Did they heal Johnny? 
And it says in verse 11, it says, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? And right there, Peter and John show the depth of their character. In this moment, they could have been famous. Yeah, he healed them. We, you and who else will be healed? We'll heal all y'all. Come on, give me some money. Now he says, don't look at us like we're something special because we're not. Do you think that, that we mere human beings have the power to do something miraculous? We don't. And then Peter and John, they seize the moment and understand this is a new opportunity. Everybody's watching, everybody's listening. And they do what you're supposed to do when God moves. They point people to Jesus. They point people to Jesus. Look at verse 16. It says, by faith in his name, Jesus, in his name, Jesus has made this man strong whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of you all. You want to know how he got healed? It's not because of us. You want to know why something powerful is happening here? It's not because we're special. It's because of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do on this planet and through his people. That's what you've witnessed here. Nothing from us. And all of a sudden, now they have this opportunity to share the gospel. And if you read Acts chapter 3, it looks like you're reading a repeat of, of Acts chapter 2. <laughs> because Peter wasn't like me. He, I, he got away with preaching the same message multiple times. He says, look at verse 17. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that the Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins will be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the, from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. He says, okay, here's what you need to do. I'll tell you what I told them. Repent. That Jesus, this man that, that your, your people killed, he wasn't just a man. He was the Messiah. You need to see him for who he is. You need to repent. You need to confess your sins. You need to trust his forgiveness. And you need to let him come into your life and change it. And now, like all throughout history, when God starts moving, there's a segment of people that don't like it. And it's usually the uber-religious folks. Because they don't like to see God doing something that they're not a part of. And so they want to find a reason to dismiss it and explain why it's not good. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. This thing's getting out of control. It's getting out of control. It was this small little movement. When Jesus went to the cross, there wasn't even nobody hardly to be found. And then he rose from the dead. Now, all of a sudden, just a, just a few weeks after all these events, they saw these thousands of people that are believing in this Jesus, and they get really frustrated and they have to figure out, like, how, how are we going to stop this? And this is their solution. 
Because they, they like the fact that the, the people that are following Jesus are doing good things. So they don't tell them to stop doing good things. They love the fact that these new followers of Jesus seem to be charitable, doing good things for poor people and all that kind of stuff. But this is what they say. Don't stop doing what you're doing. Just leave Jesus out of it. Don't stop doing what you're doing. Just leave Jesus out of it. Does it feel at all familiar to anybody in the room of what we've experienced in our culture from time? Don't stop. Be charitable. Just leave Jesus out of it. Look at me. If we're charitable without Jesus, we're not the church. God has not called us to simply be charitable. If we are charitable without Jesus, we are something other than his church. Because before people need anything else, they need Jesus. And we should be charitable. The church should be the most charitable thing on all the earth, but our charity should be used as a pathway to the gospel. I said, no, leave Jesus out of it. And they make it really clear that it is through Jesus and because of Jesus and for Jesus. Look at, drop down to Acts chapter four, go to verse 18. Actually, no, go back up. Go to verse, go to verse eight, go to verse eight. It says, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And they call him in. They say, just stop using his name. Do good, leave Jesus out. Do good, leave Jesus out. Look at verse 18. It says, so they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. He says, we can't. <laughs> we can't. You want us to stop speaking? We cannot stop. No matter what you do, we won't stop because we can't stop because we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we have to tell people who he is. And had they not taken that stand in that moment, if they would have been willing to move just that much, it would have completely changed everything. I'm grateful for leaders who have decided we have to know when and where and how to take a stand in order to protect the church and keep it what Jesus intended it to be. And from that moment to this one, the church needs leaders. It needs inspirational leaders who are willing to do what these people did at the beginning. And there's just a handful of observations I wanna quickly bring to your attention that inspirational leaders, there's some qualities, there's some attributes, there's some things that I see in them that God reminded me of as I've been reading through the book of Acts again. Number one is this, to walk with purpose, you have to sit in prayer. Number two, 
To walk in purpose, you have to sit in prayer. Where were they going when they healed the man? They were going to pray. They were going to pray. That's not a pattern that started that day. Matter of fact, I am convinced that the reason why they had enough faith and they were able to recognize the opportunity to heal this man on that day is because all the days before they had walked up to that temple to talk to God. Leaders have to pray. And prayer is the one thing that leaders, I think, undervalue. There's a lot of things that we, we, want, we want to work and we want to study. And we, if you're going to walk in purpose, you're going to have to sit in prayer. I'm grateful for leaders in the 15-year history of this church who have been people of prayer, like Chris and Nikki Foster. Chris and Nikki called our staff a couple weeks ago before Live Love was going to start, and he said, hey, we just want to get the staff together to pray over you before we launch Live Love this year. And at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, they came over here. We met back there in their office, and they put a chair in the center of themselves. And each one of our leaders sat in those chairs, and they put hands on us and prayed for us and prayed for our church, prayed for our marriages, prayed for our kids, prayed for... If you're going to walk in purpose, you have to sit in prayer. When you watch this unfold in Acts 3 and 5, you're also reminded that when the gospel is your goal, you don't seek glory. When the gospel is your goal, you don't seek glory. They had every chance to, to say, yep, look what we did. We done healed a man. We are great. Now they said, no, this is about Jesus. That no amount of ability can compensate for a lack of humility in a leader. That's why I think about Lyle Denton. Lyle Denton is our COO now, but most of y'all don't know this. He started out as our worship pastor. He called me before we even launched as a church. I said, hey man, I hear God's put it on your heart to plant a church. You need a worship pastor. I said, dude, I need everything. Right now it's just me. I said, but I have no money. He said, I'll move up there and I'll get a job. And he moved up here hours away from his family, lived in a spare bedroom of a family on our core team sold insurance, did all kinds of stuff. And he was our worship pastor. And you might say, well, why is he not our worship pastor now? It's because about 2009, this dude in really skinny jeans and weird hair named Christian Hahn showed up at our church, played drums. One Sunday, Lyle was gonna be out of town on vacation. He said, hey man, um, Christian's gonna lead worship this weekend. I said, that's awesome, but can he sing? <laughs> For real, I never heard him sing. A few years later, Lyle comes to me and he says, hey man, Christian can do my job better than me. And because he can, he should. Because our church deserves the best. This is a dude that had sacrificed so much, had given so much, the humility. And he said, here's a handful of things that I think our church really needs right now that I would love to do. And I think you should give him the worship pastor job and let me do this and I'm okay with it. That's humility. You know why? Because when the gospel is your goal, you don't need the glory. You don't need the glory. These men also understood that leadership is not a specific position. It's a noticeable posture. Because look, at, when I'm saying leaders, I'm not talking about just pastors. Leaders aren't people necessarily to stand on this platform. 
or that have a seminary degree. Look at uh, this. Somehow I left this verse out. So you're going to open up your Bible because I know you got your Bible open because you're a good Christian. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says, when they, all these religious people, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and look at it, realized they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's Acts 4.13. See, leadership is not a specific position. It's a noticeable posture. And I've seen people like that all throughout the history of our church. I think most of Jason and Jenny Austin. I sat across a table at Elizabeth's Pizza in Greensboro from Jason just weeks after he looked at me and said, dude, I'll never be a part of another church plant. And over the last 15 years, Jason and Jenny have served our church in every way that you can name. Every way. They've done several different things. And right now, they don't necessarily have a specific title, but you get around either one of those two people and you will see an evident posture of leadership. Another thing I noticed in Acts 3 and 4 is when Jesus is your priority, obedience becomes your obsession. They were, they were so obsessed with being obedient to God. So obsessed, they didn't care what happened to them. I've always been convinced that the number one threat to the effectiveness of the church is a posture of people pleasing. But when you're so obsessed with pleasing Jesus, you ain't worried about what everybody else thinks. They said, you judge for yourself whether it's right to please you or please God. We're gonna please God because we're obsessed with obedience to God. That was the leadership in the book of Acts that protected the church through every obstacle and adverse moment. And look at me, church, we've had them too over the last 15 years. And the reason why we're not the statistic, two out of every three church plants never see year three. The reason why we're at year 15, obviously because of the goodness and gracious and power of God. But it's because people that have said, I'm gonna do more than just sit I'm gonna lead, not because I want a title or need a title. I'm gonna embody all the things that I saw in the book of Acts. And if we're gonna be here 15 years from now, more people will have to answer that call. I believe we're raising a generation that's gonna answer that call unlike any I've ever seen. Let me tell you something, one of them, and I'll, I'll celebrate it, one of them is my own kids. Young ladies sitting on this front row over here who are going to say yes to Jesus and do something in their generation much more powerful than I have ever seen. I believe it and I claim it in Jesus' name. But what about you? What's God calling you to do? To stand up and step in to what He's wanting to do right now? To be a leader that inspires people to live and love like Jesus. Father, I pray that as we close our time together worshiping you and lifting up a song of praise that you would use this time to bring challenge and conviction and strength and all the things that we need to say yes. God, you picked people that we would have never picked. <laughs> There's not a single person in this room that is unusable. That if we follow you, yes, we're called to grow and do all these other things, but God, you're looking for people to lead the way. God, help us to lead the way, to use the influence that we have 
to point people to you and your truth. And God, I pray that as we worship you, that you'd speak to hearts, that you would give us specific direction, each one of us, as to what we need to do as we move forward in faith. In Jesus' name.